Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Wind by Ray Bradbury, first published in Weird Tales, March 1943. Uh, I've read this story probably four or five times over the years, and uh, I like it. I'm I'm not sure what to make of it exactly, but I I do like it. Um, (laughs) I challenge you to give a summary of the story. Ugh, I'm not very good at giving summaries. Um, I challenge you right back. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the reason I wanted to challenge you is because I'm really interested to find out what underlies your your positive reaction to the story. I have a feeling that that the things that I like in the story may not be, at least at a conscious level, liked by uh, all other readers. The story begins with John Colt. He was awake and listening, dot, dot, dot. It turns out that what he's listening to is wind. Actually, somehow magically he can hear wind that's a mile away. Um, I don't know how he does that exactly. You can hear the sound of the wind, but I don't know how you can tell from the sound of it how far away it is. I know how you can tell how far away thunder is because first you've seen the lightning, but I don't know how he can do this. But he has some kind of deep knowledge of the wind, which we discover has been haunting him. That is, the wind has been haunting him ever since he climbed the mountain of the winds, a forbidden mountain. Not only did he touch the mountain, which is forbidden, he scaled it. And this is a mountain where all of the many winds of the world come together. Bradbury, who loves words and and is often gorgeous in his use of them, uh, names winds like Scirocco and Pompano and all kinds of of well-known persistent winds or climatological winds that one can expect, like the Santa Anas in Southern California, although they're not mentioned in this story. Apparently, because he's broken this curse, he thinks that's why. The wind is out to get him. Uh, he calls his friend um, Herb Thompson and asks to have Herb come over and stay with him. But Herb can't because they're having Herb and Alice are having company that night. And then uh, John remembers the whole life the last 10 years leading up to tonight. And he remembers scaling the mountain. He remembers all of the different difficulties. And as the wind approaches his house, which he's wisely reinforced since the wind has found him after the 10 years and in the last week has been apparently trying to attack him. He says that it's like a great hound snuffling at his windows. So he's had the the glass reinforced, the house reinforced and so on Um, as he's waiting. Um, He's thinking about, no, it doesn't want me. It's not trying to kill me. It wants me alive. It turns out that John Colt is a writer. And what he writes about is forces of nature. Um, He has done research all over the world on hurricanes and typhoons and so on. And he decides that the wind 
wants him alive so as to be able to incorporate his knowledge into the wind's knowledge. Um, the wind finally seems to break into his house. Uh, it prevents him from committing suicide and evading being absorbed into this sort of hive mind. And uh, the next thing we know, um, Herb Thompson, whose phone call with uh, a second phone call with uh, John Colt has been cut off, uh, goes to uh, is thinking of going to John Colt's house. But he hears uh, someone knocking at his own door and he opens it and there's nothing there. But he thinks mm-hmm. he hears laughter in the wind. And that's the creepy ending. <laughs> okay. So, so from my point of view, as I think you can tell, there ain't much content there. It's all, and you'll forgive this, it's not intended as a pun, it's all atmospherics. <laughs> it is all wind, I think. Um <laughs> this is a pretty funny story uh, in that I think it I think it is actually sort of meant as a, a satire. Um, and yet it's so Ray Bradbury anyways. I think it's a, sort of supposed to be a satire of Lovecraft and the style of story that he pioneered in Weird Tales that just really is about some guy uh, bedeviled by forces beyond you know the knowledge of normal men and it has all those elements it's in this version of the story which is the original um he he has servants who he's sent away right that's a that's a classic sort of gothic trope um it's got it's got this mansion he's reinforced or reconstructed so that it can withstand all the damage and he's so he he's a travel writer not well known to be you know super rich guys travel writers um so it's it's absolutely set within the context i think of it being a weird tales story um and yet uh in subsequent rewritings ray bradbury sort of takes those elements out i think in the adaptation he did for the ray bradbury theater um it's it's a lot more about sort of just that standard Ray Bradbury thing where he's he just takes a concept and says, huh, let me think about this and sort of does that. And it has all those elements already in here. But um, it's it, 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 it almost feels like a comedy piece. And I clued into a couple of things that don't happen that we're supposed to I think supposed to anticipate are going to happen. And one of them is, of course, the, the two character names, right? We've got a guy named Colt and a guy named Thompson, both American gun manufacturers, right? Yep. Um, the one thing that doesn't happen at the end of the story is him shooting himself, which is pretty standard for a Lovecraft story, right? Uh, stories from Lovecraft uh, can start like, I have just sent... Th- Six. Yes, it is true that I've sent six bullets through the head of my friend, but I did it for good reason, or something like that. <laughs> uh, but I saved him, right, from some force beyond imagining. Um, it, halfway through the story, um, he cocks his head, right. Um, at another point, when he picks up the phone, um, it's it's in the dark, and he anticipates it's a phone, 
but we don't actually see that it's a phone. He says it's it. He 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 groped about right, and he picked it up, and it made a click, and it's like he's putting the phone up to his ear, and talking to it right. There's there's a lot of the elements of him, as if he's about to shoot out his own brains in order to avoid being taken alive, but no, instead he tries to hang himself, um, and then the gun never goes off right. The 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 gun that we're expecting that Chekhov's gun that is planted in the very first line never goes off. Instead, something else goes off. But he goes off with the wind. So, there's that. But, that's not all I like about it. <laughs> I, in my experience, um, it's not always easy to tell what satire. The passage... Sure of Lovecraft that you just suggested to us. Uh, frankly, I could read that as satire too. It seems to me so mm. over the top, but you know, that's how Lovecraft wrote for weird tales. Mm. I think that it wasn't supposed to be to what extent intention matters. I don't know. I don't think that Lovecraft wanted his audience to feel that he's making fun of horror conventions. I think he was trying to push them. And Lovecraft's prose that some people look at as Rococo, others look at as purple. Mm. And I think one could say the same thing about Bradbury here. Uh, it didn't strike me as satiric. I understand why you say that it might, but the fact that out of the Weird Tales context, out of the the journal that was used to publishing Lovecraft, he toned some of this down, I think may indicate that he realized it might be thought of as too purple, either meaning that it was bad writing or that it was satiric, and he didn't mm -hmm. want that to happen. So he, he felt he could get away with writing this Rococo prose in Weird Tales, but in the reprinting, which happened many times, including in a couple of volumes of his own assemblage, uh, October Country, and uh, I forget the other one. Um, that that uh, I, I don't I don't know that he meant it to be satiric, but it, it may. What I have found consistently with with Bradbury is that he has an incredibly finely tuned cultural awareness that brings material into his creative process and it comes out often without ever having been consciously understood. Uh, a famous story has to do with his brief novel Fahrenheit 451 which for many people is perhaps his most famous work. It was used by the National Endowment for the Humanities as the book for the big read. So, you know, everyone in the country was supposed to read Fahrenheit 451. It's a book about book burning. So it uh, it satisfies the ideological mission behind the National Endowment for the Humanities as well. 
in Fahrenheit 451, the main character is a fireman, meaning that he sets fire to books, and his name is Montag. Uh, he ultimately is persuaded to take a subversive position against the government that supports those activities by uh, an, a, a man named Faber, the, the last <laughs> living English professor. And uh, apparently... Uh, and I've, I know this myself from having spoken to Bradbury about it. Apparently, several years after the book was published, a graduate student in English from UCLA got to go visit Bradbury in his study. And while in his study, she noticed that he was writing on that is he typed um, he typed on what was called Carassable Bond. It was a a kind of erasable typing paper that I myself used uh, in high school. And and he wrote, he made his corrections with number two uh, pencils, uh, which had a nice eraser on one end and a place to write in things with carrots uh, at the, the business end of it. And she looked and she, she said, Mr. Bradbury, uh, this is a book about books, Fahrenheit 451, it's wonderful that you're using Montag Caracible Bond <laughs> and you're correcting your text with Faber and Faber pencils. <laughs> and Bradbury looked at her and said, I never realized that. And in fact, um, he confirmed to me that he had never realized that. <laughs> Although I should say that in print, he years later did assert that he knew it all along. <laughs> now, I think one of the things that makes Bradbury so powerful as a writer is that he is, in fact, an autodidact. Things come in and, and he just he they're his and he just uses them however he would like. Uh, so in this particular story, uh, he uses the English language in ways that are, are entirely of his own construction. Uh, he verbs things, um, which I just did. I took the noun verb and I turned it into a verb called verbing uh, to verb. And he verbs things. So there's someone who stanced a certain way. Why didn't he just say he stood a certain way? Well, the narrator wants to show that the way he stood was taking a stance. The book, the book, the story is full of these verbings. Um, he just he he uses stuff. So if I may, I want to go back to John Colt and Herb Thompson. Um, yes, they both have gun names, but I think there's more going on there. The story begins, John Colt was awake and listening, dot, dot, dot. Moonlight sluiced into his room by the huge triple window. Triple is going to matter later. Fronting the upstairs of the house. Notice how front has now become verbed fell across his sharp, questioning features. The wind moved far away in the night, and Colt's lips worked as he listened to it, moving stealthily and mournfully from the sea, approaching the house as surely as mighty horses' hooves. Mm -hmm. Well, the Colt is a kind of gun, but it's also a kind of horse. It's a young horse. Mm -hmm. In fact, the entire story has resonances with the kind of imagery you would expect in an American Western. 
It has hunting. It has showdown. It has the confrontation at the OK Corral. It has, you know, somebody trying to protect the homestead against the encircling bad guys, whether they're outlaws or the ranchers uh, around the sheep herders or whatever. Um, And the Colt is the gun that presumably tamed the West. But this time it doesn't. Who survives is the guy whose name reminds us of the Thompson submachine gun, Mm -hmm. which is the weapon of choice for those who managed to succeed in the capitalist system. John Dillinger and the other bank robbers of the, the prohibition era running around with their Tommy guns. So the story, um, does give us the guns, no doubt about it, but it also gives us the Western. And by using this name Colt and having horses, hooves and other references to the the locale of the West, I think in a way what Bradbury gives us is a notion that in the modern world, the world in which the forces of nature, meteorology, tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, Sirocco's, you know, Pompano's, um, Santa Ana winds, um, in that world, that natural world of those forces, something as simple as a cult may have been able to tame the people of the West, but not the West. But in the 20th century, the time of the the Thompson submachine gun, the Tommy gun people, they're just divorced from the natural world of the West. They survive fine. It's more industrialized. It's a different era. And this came out, after all, right in the middle of World War II. It came out during an industrial war. Uh, The guy who used to travel the world is the one who gets absorbed into the hive mind. The guy who isn't traveling the world, and why isn't he doing something related to the war effort in 1943? Um, He's the guy who hears the laughter, but he gets away scot-free. It's as if we have gained a certain kind of safety at the cost of a certain kind of ignorance. There is something in favor of nature here, even though John Colt, who is, after all, named for a gun, not a natural object. He is not a horse who grows up. He's always too damned young to be mature here, um, even though he suffers from it. I think all of those connections, the, the gun and the, the place of the gun in the West and the Western imagery, I don't think that Bradbury thought that through at all. Uh, yeah. I think he felt it and he coordinated it beautifully. There's, there's, it's, it's beautiful to read, too. I, I want to read a passage aloud here. It's got a, a whole lot of interesting phenomena, but I, I, I just love that the main character is a writer like uh, – I was going to say like Lovecraft, uh-huh. like Bradbury, um, who is – he is actually – I'm not sure that the, there is any wind. I mean maybe a, a, a slight breeze. I think a lot of this is just <laughs> in his head, and it it's it, – I think that that's right in the text. So I want to I wanna read this section here. All right. So it goes like this. It was a dark, meaningful wind. Others might have been amused by Colt's wild thoughts. Thompson's, for instance, would laugh uproariously. But Colt was not amused. Alone out here, the nine o'clock countryside. So it's only nine at night. In a vast tide of shadowy, shadowed, eerie silence. This fortress of a house, his final refuge. 
The last roll of the dice forced on him. Colt could only wait. The last stand. Decks cleared for action. Colt dragged on his cigarette, flicked it away, thinking, if I scream, no one will hear me. No one. I'm far from town. Too damned far. He'd phoned Herb in 20 minutes. What to say? Something like this. Herb, it began 10 years ago when I was investigating phenomena. I'd been around, seen hurricanes, typhoons, and whirlwinds. I knew what wind could do. While I was in Tibet, I heard... Uh, well, I was in Tibet. I heard of a mountain, the Mountain of Winds, capital W, the space where the dark winds from all over the earth congregate at one time or another. It is a vast, evil mountain, gray, jutting, hard, bony rock, with a hand, without hand or foothold, blasphemy to touch it. I touched it, Herb. More, I scaled it, up thousands of thickening, dizzy feet, climbing where only madmen climb to probe into what is better left undissected. I gained its crest, raw and wounded. Is it him that's raw and wounded, or is it the mountain that's raw and wounded? Of all the high, wild places I've, I've seen, this was the most terrifying. On its very peak, cleft a scar of valley through which a tide of wind rushed shrieking. Not one wind, but millions, small and large and light and smoked-hued. <laughs> Countable winds, apparently. Yeah. Snow, rain, sleet, and hail rang all about on the rocks. The blunt flesh of the mountain, of the mount, sustained it all, and I perceived this from a niche protected. Like he's going to be uh, in a little niche in his basement pretty soon. Uh, oh, how the clouds shot by here, there. High up like creamy shreds, torn from some huge and belabored wolfskin. What a noise, what a view, what a force and violence. How I snailed up and down or escaped, I don't know. Call it luck, fate, the will of an intervening god. But I cleaved like a lichen, hung, dropped, picked myself up, dropped again, scrambled and ran, afraid of what I'd seen. I go to Bombay from time to time. After that, there were suggestions of what would follow. Nothing definitely singling me out for action, but general disturbances that occurred with ungodly precision wherever I traveled. Then they ceased. I thought I had licked it. Until this week, six nights ago, I lay sleepless and listening. I heard a wind that night, Herb, chuckling and laughing at the house, just for an hour or so, not very long and not very loud, but it went away. But I never will forget the sounds it made. The second night, the same thing happened. Only this time, Herb, he thought, thought Colt. <laughs> this is, he's not actually talking to Herb. This is what he's planning to say to Herb. The wind slammed shutters, spilled down the chimney, throwing soot, whisking out the fire in sparks. The first two nights were bad. I cocked my head, listened amused to think I heard faint voices singing in the wind. But the third and fourth nights I changed my mind. It grew worse. The fifth night the wind returned and stayed on and on, blowing and blowing until dawn. I remember what happened when I dared to open the door a moment. The wind came eagerly in. Colt stanced himself resolutely. He was not old. Thirty, moonlight, thirty, moonlight mantling his lean, intent face, his thick black hair and dark eyes. For the present, he did not recognize fear. He rubbed shoulders with curiosity, but tired resignation was his bed companion. Eventually, it would have snared him, no matter what he did. He had plenty of warning to flee, but he shrugged. Why bother? He'd make his stand here. 
The wind was almost tangible, rushing from tree to tree, faster, faster, and yet faster, rising, roaring, rising like a great translucent fist, ready to crush down upon the house, ready to sweep it away. But what was it? What was its purpose? It didn't want the house. It didn't want the house at all. It wanted cold. That's the guy dra uh, dramatizing, right? This writer dramatizing his own life, dramatizing the sound of the wind that he can see from miles away. It is. It's it, it's almost uh, it's has to be satire in a certain sense, and yet um, he also he knows that other people would think him mad. He at one point says, "If I call the police, they're going to send the quote soft pad squad, which is some term that means presumably the the insanity squad. Apparently, they have a squad for picking up insane people." <laughs> right. And, you know, there is a real thing, um, a sort of a quasi-phenomena in, in the world that the wind can drive you mad. There's something called prairie madness, um, whether it's real or not. People do get spooked by the wind. So there, there is something to it. But it, it feels like it's a, like a supernatural monster out to get them. Like in a story like Lovecraft's The Hound or something like that. He's he's touched a for, forbidden mountain. Now it's after him like a curse he's broken. Oh, the mountain's not after him, of course. It's the mountain of winds. That's the, the abode. Um, the winds are indeed a powerful force. The, the passage that you just uh, read for us is one that is rife with imagery having to do with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he says that he was in this niche. The rain, snow, sleet, hail rang all about. Uh, the blunt flesh of the mount sustained it. I perceived this from a niche, a niche, uh, protected. How I snailed up or down or escaped, I don't know. Call it luck, fate, the will of an intervening God. I am reminded of Exodus 33, verses 19 to 22, in which... Moses has been bargaining with God, uh, demonstrating that he has been indeed a good servant of God and leading the people, the Hebrew speakers, the Ivrit, um, who are not yet the children of Israel, um, from the land of Egypt. And he says that he wants to meet God. He goes up on Sinai and God says that he will do that because he has found favor. You, Moses, have found favor in my sight. Uh, but... I will put you in a cleft of the rock and hold my hand before you. And as mm. I pass by, you may see my hind parts for no man may live upon, look upon my face and live. So an intervening God has managed to mask the full vision of the glory of God from Moses so that Moses who appreciates the truth of God's existence is able to know by his own senses of God's existence and yet live. There's a line in this story that says, let this mortal live, which is, mm -hmm. of course, in some sense, oxymoronic, since mortal means you die. The, the reference to God comes up again and again. And in this passage, as I say, I think we have a, an explicit reference in the text. I don't know that Bradbury thought of it to a passage that works with this uh, from Exodus. In fact, after Colt is done thinking about um, 
what he would say to Thompson were he to be able to get him on the phone. He then dials, and the mm-hmm. phone number that he dials begins with a Trinity um, right. phone exchange. So in part what we have here, as we do in many classic uh, science fiction stories in the just post-World War II global war that is period, like the Nine Billion Names of God by Arthur C. Clarke, we have a contest between the the Western religion, the Trinity religion, and the Eastern religion, which we in the West have tended to dismiss, but may in fact be in deeper touch with the forces of nature. And I think that's what we get to see here, though I am not arguing that Bradbury knew it consciously. So that at the end, in fact, the mortal does get to live, but he doesn't get to live the way he wants to. I think we need to see him as part of absorbed into this 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 being this sum of all winds a sudden wind caught whipped his coat disheveled his hair this is thompson's hair he thought he heard laughter again that is thompson did standing on his porch at the end of the story the wind died down sad morning passing away away going back far out to the sea to the salives to nairobi to sumatra and cape horn fading 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 laughing thompson shrugged he went in and closed the door shivering that's funny he said i don't think it's funny i don't think it's satire i think he's been touched by deeper forces you know you have to ask yourself why is it that the wind which is capable of killing so many and has i mean that's what what colt has studied and written books about why is it that it doesn't kill more if all it wants to do is kill well it doesn't just want to kill it wants to live its own kind of life at least that's what this story argues and its mm. kind of life requires at this moment, not a revenge against Colt. He misunderstood, and he himself said, "No, you want me alive." He wants the, the wind wants Colt alive because it's a new kind of knowledge. It's a scientific mm-hmm. knowledge. He wants to absorb even more. To that is he, the wind, uh, or they, the wind, to expand its own vitality and sense of self. That's something that Thompson can't give it. So it just knocks on the door so as to give a laughing farewell to Thompson. The part of the wind that is now Colt is saying goodbye. Um, Is this a happy ending or an unhappy ending? It's back to the question of the hive mind. If you become part of the Borg, you really do believe that you are happy. To contemplate losing all individuality by becoming part of the Borg you think is deadly. The story leaves us with that. That's funny. It gives us a shiver, but we don't know what to think. Although, of course, there's always more to say.